Lamentations chapter 3, we're continuing this morning a series in lament in general, but especially the book of Lamentations, which is the best example of lament in the scriptures, a great opportunity to see it in action and to learn from it. One pastor said something like, everyone experiences grief, no one is ready for it. I think that's right. Maybe you've experienced that too. And honestly, given what grief is, how could you be ready for it? One of the things we've talked about in this, in this series is we've just been trying to understand loss better. Is that grief, loss, that it divides your life into a before and an after. That's what it does. There was a who you were when you had this thing or this someone. And there's a who you are after. It's gone. Grief, in other words, is disorienting. Because you were oriented to the world through what you had, you understood it, you knew who you were, you knew what you wanted, you knew what you were for. That thing, that person, gone, you have to find a new normal. It's disorienting. And one of the things we've talked about when we've talked about lament is that it's given to us as a gift to help reorient us. It's about finding your way again when grief has knocked you off course. I think of it as a kind of GPS when you've missed that turn. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're following Google Maps or whatever you're using and you miss the turn you were supposed to miss and then for a time it's just like a wheel spinning a wheel spinning and you're not sure what to do and 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 your map system is trying to find a new course for you right and you're waiting until you find it and then you'll know where to go from there you need a reorientation and lament as a genre as a kind of way of of approaching God through your sorrow is meant as that reorientation process your life off course this is how you get back on it Lamentations overall is a great example of this, but its main tone is not hope. Its main tone is grief and loss. That said, the third poem in this collection of five poems, the one we're looking at today, it's actually a shining example of hope. Not, not, not an over-the-rainbow sort of hope, not a Pollyanna-type wishful thinking sort of hope, but a genuine clear-eyed God-honoring hope nonetheless and it's this hope it's in this chapter that we get to watch the reorientation of lament happen more clearly than anywhere else in the book and that's what I want to focus on this morning there's a lot about this poem that's meant to draw your attention it's meant to show you to draw your attention to this particular poem in the rest of the book as the thing to notice Amongst many things that you should notice, pay special attention here. The, the Hebrew poetry behind it that's sort of lost on us in the, in the English translation, translation that we'll be reading uh, is screaming at us, basically, to, to, to pay attention, slow down, notice what's happening here. I mean, for one thing, in the Hebrew way of writing, you put your main points in the middle, usually. You know, in our way of thinking, we're very linear, and we, a lot of times we'll build to a crescendo. Our main point comes at the end. Theirs weren't, weren't like that. A lot of times you built up to the main point. And, and that's, that's where we find ourselves here, the third out of five poems. But even more than that, one of the things behind the English translation, you can't really see it in our Bibles, is, is that the author is using an acrostic to write his poems. That means that there's a verse for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the first line in that verse starts with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 1 to 22. When you come to chapter 3, and there's actually... Every line in each verse starts with, the, with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Not just the first line, but every line. That's why our Bible divides them up into 66 verses. 
of, of, of one line starting with that letter of the alphabet. All of that to say, the author's trying to grab your attention. Think of it as a strobe light, or even better, think of it as one of those uh, inflatable dudes that are out in front of the used car, lot, uh, car lots. You know those things that are just sort of flopping all around? My kids love those. That's what this poetry here is supposed to do for you as you're coming through this in Lamentations. Like, notice here, stop here. And the reason that it gets that kind of attention is that in the middle of genuine grief and loss, honest pain barely expressed, everything laid bare, we get a, a confident reclaiming of the hope based not on anything changing in the one who hopes, based only in the rock-solid, steadfast, loving character of the God who is everything to them. I want to I build to these verses at the middle of this chapter that are the most famous in the book, but make sure that we hear those verses in context. That's key. And that's what we want to try to do today. I'm following in the breakdown that you can, that you can follow along with in the worship guide. There's, I'm using three steps. I'm basically ripping this off with a couple of slight tweaks from one of my favorite resources on Lamentations, a, a commentary by a guy named Christopher Wright. There should be a copy back on the worship or the resource table. I've got a couple extra copies if you'd like one. I'm using uh, his breakdown of it to show you that hope is the main theme, but we get to see hope under stress in this chapter. What it looks like to hope when you're suffocating. What it looks like to, to hope when you're remembering, to fight for hope by memory of who God is. And then what it looks like to, to, to plead from a place of hope when your situation still hasn't changed. So three steps I'm going to take this morning are, are hope suffocating. Just a really honest view of where this person was when he was writing hope remembering and what you can remember in your suffering to fight for hope in the midst of it and then hope pleading what it looks like to pray to God from a hard place that's the three steps we're going to take together this morning now my role this morning is just to be your tour guide into the riches of this incredible poem this is not one of those weeks where you where you labor over every verse and pull it all apart in every one of its phrases we're covering 66 verses today so a lot of this morning is going to be letting it wash over you, okay? And I'm going to read big chunks of it throughout the morning and try to pull out the things. I especially want you to notice it'll be helpful to you and encouraging and, and the, the way that you can really understand what this poem is meant to be on its terms. I want to begin, as we always do, our tradition here at Trinity is to stand and honor God's word when we read it. I'm going to read the first three verses as you stand, and then from there, I'll, I'll work through the rest of the poem uh, uh, throughout the rest of our time together. So would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read from Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word to us. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. This is God's word. You can be seated. You notice what this poet is doing here? He is personalizing what he's already said before as a third party. You know, up until this point, he's been talking like kind of objective broadcaster, standing in front of a wasteland. Think of a hurricane or something. The guy with the, with the, the rain jacket and the wind is whipping him and he's trying to tell you what's happening back here behind him as a third party. But, but, but now he's personalizing it. Now he's using his, his, his first person pronouns. He's saying, I am the man. I'm not talking about someone else's pain and sorrow. 
I'm talking about mine. So now the broadcaster is standing basically in his hometown, watching it destroyed by the force of the winds. He's being blown. He's being washed over by these waves that are coming in behind him. And he screams for himself now for the rest of this poem. That's meant to catch your attention. It's also meant to remind you that it's important not to think of suffering as someone else's problem, but to be honest about your own. That part of the path to peace and to genuine, realistic hope is being willing to talk like this man talks about your pain to your friends. There is no hope for someone whose only hope is keeping it together because you won't. And this, this personalizing, even just these first three verses, is your invitation to just go there. And that alone is important to us to look. This opening uh, 18 verses give us a powerful model, if you can bear to look at it, a powerful model of what it is to be honest with God in your pain. And I want to keep reading here. As we, as we think about hope suffocating, I want to show you the different images this poet uses to describe the suffocation he was experiencing through this judgment that God had brought to his life and his people. The, verse, the, next, uh, the next section, verses four to six, he describes it as if God is killing him. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. Think of a body decomposing. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. This man is buried. And God has buried him. Moving on to verse 7 to 9. The imagery changes from that of the dying, decomposing body in the ground to God as his jailer who's locked him in solitary confinement and thrown away the key. He has walled me about, the poet writes, so I can't escape. He's made my chains heavy. This is a prisoner in his cell, weighed down. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's in solitary confinement. Nothing he says reaches anyone's ears. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my path crooked. You see the imagery? He's in prison. God is his jailer. Verses 10 to 13, the image shifts again. This one's the most terrifying of all. In these verses, God is a predator and he is the prey. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. So there the animal kingdom gives us our imagery verse 12 he shifts it to a hunter he has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver there's no missing these images as, as their friends this is a person who's suffocating under the weight of this sorrow and he believes in God so he knows that that God has brought this into his life And that's what terrifies him most of all. He's expressing what he's experiencing and bringing God into it. Verses 14 to 18 summarize what he feels. The suffocation of his hopes. I have become the laughing stock, he says, of all peoples. The object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness and has sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower 
in ashes. This is a man who's broken. He's traumatized. He's like a scared animal that doesn't know where he is. Think of him cowering in the dust. Not again, no more. And not sure where to turn. And so he says, my soul is bereft of peace. Where is he going to get peace? I've forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. That's where his honesty, his honest cataloging of what he's experienced from God ends. Another contrast between what was and what is now, his new normal. He knew happiness once, now he's forgotten it. He had peace once, now it's been taken away. And his hope is perishing. Now, what you need to know is that he is not saying here, he's not saying at all that Jerusalem, that the people of Israel, that that he himself doesn't deserve all of this and more. That doesn't come into it. And it's beside the point. Because Lamentations is partly about why God brought judgment on his people, but it's also more than that. It's also a window into what it feels like to lose everything. The point is what it feels like to be devastated by your life and to know that God is involved in it, behind it. So if you're here now or you find yourself here in this place sometime soon, I want you to remember that this passage is in the Bible, that it's left here for you as a gift. It's a gift from the God who inspired it so that you know that your experience is seen and accounted for, that you have others holding on to hope who understand what you felt. That's hope suffocating. It's the first theme in the poem. But where I want to spend most of our time this morning is the second section that begins in verse 19. What I really want you to take away from this poem, what its uniqueness is compared to the other poems in this book, is what it looks like for hope to remember. You need to know if you're here or if you get here into this desperate place, you need to know that this passage is in the Bible, that it's a gift for you to use freely from the God who made you and will be for you. You need to know that. But you also need to know that reorientation is possible. That hopelessness is not an ending for you. It doesn't have to be. That's the move the poem makes next. Verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, that's for sure. And it's bowed down within me. This is a man who's honest. He's not trying to dodge the weight of what he's been through or pretend like it's not as terrible as it is. He's remembering everything that's happened to him. And the kind of memory he's talking about here in these two verses is the kind of involuntary, unshakable memory of trauma. It's the kind of memory that, that breaks in on you when you're not looking for it, that, that, that you can't really control, that hits you when it's unexpected or stays with you when you're trying to go to sleep or steals your concentration when you're trying to work at your responsibilities. He can't not remember what he saw. Maybe you've known that. And only now, it seems like, in the grand scheme of things, coming to understand post-traumatic stress and what it does, that sounds like what this man is dealing with. And what he has seen, he can't unsee. And his soul is bowed down in him. That's the involuntary memory that he's calling your attention to. But look where he goes next. This I call to mind, verse 21. 
and therefore I have hope. He's depressed. He's traumatized. He's trapped in his pain. All of that is involuntary. But from that place, he makes a decision. He reclaims his agency. He consciously and intentionally chooses to remember what he might have easily forgotten from this point. And what he remembers brings him hope. What is it? What is it that he chooses to remember? I want to spend most of our time this morning giving you a few examples. I want to walk you through this next section and show you a few things about God that this man in his pain remembers so that he can hold on to hope when it's suffocating. Here's the first thing that our poet remembers and it's fundamental to all the other things that he's going to remember. This is the one that matters most. Our poet remembers the Lord's steadfast love. Verse 22. This I call to mind, he said, therefore I have hope. It's very specific. His hope is not wishful thinking. It's tied to something concrete that he goes to now. This I call to mind. What? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Therefore, he can say to himself, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. He remembers the steadfast love of the Lord first and foremost, and that's his only source of hope. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. I'm going to say it again now. It is crucial for us, friends, that we take these familiar verses and put them in their proper context. One writer especially helped me to see this in a book that's still, that will come out soon on lament by a pastor named Mark Vrogup emphasized how often we associate this, these verses with with times when God's faithfulness is especially clear to us. Like these are the verses we pull out when we're feeling the weight of his goodness, as we should. It's important to be grateful, to notice when God has been good to us. So, so my, my most common associations with verses like this are like mornings like some of the ones we had last week. We had a family, kind of a family reunion type gathering. We do this often in the summer on the 4th of July. Uh, with my side of the family, we, we sit at this beautiful uh, house in the mountains that some friends uh, allow us to use. It, it faces a lake, and behind the lake, these beautiful rolling green hills of the foothills of the Smokies. It's idyllic. And you sit there in that special place year after year, surrounded by the people you love most, drinking coffee, talking, passing the time of day. And in that setting, it makes a lot of sense to say, steadfast Lord, love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning, including this one, where I'm surrounded by all of you drinking coffee, looking at the mountains. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, that, that's how I normally think of these verses. And they fit that setting, for the record. But that is not where they come from. That is not their context as they're written. And if that's the only association, if we think we've got to be sitting there on that porch looking out at those mountains surrounded by all the people we love, in order to say this and mean it, then we're missing the true power behind this beautiful piece of poetry. Because, because its context is apocalyptic. Its context is a wasteland. The hope of these verses, friends, it's not some sort of endangered species that can only survive under the most hospitable environments. It's not like that. 
If you were to put these verses on top of an image, it wouldn't be those beautiful green rolling hills. It would be over the smoldering ruins of a beloved city, the hopes of a people dashed forever, loved ones killed, precious places destroyed, with no reason to expect any kind of restoration. That's where they come from. And this is where these verses matter most. This is the context in which you need them. Because this hope, the hope in a steadfast love, like an unshakable, unceasing love, the hope in newness is precisely what you need when you're struggling with the pain of loss. Do you see how perfectly it matches the loss that this book has been unpacking for us up to this point? The main theme so far has been what was and what is now. What we had, what we lost. The pain of remembering sweet times when bitterness has taken over your life. That reversal has dominated the book so far. And these verses are like a perfect answer to that pain. The pain of loss comes from disorientation. From waking up to a new normal and not knowing what to do in it. But when you wake up to that new normal, what you need to remember, first of all, is the promise of new mercies to go with it. The promise of a steadfast love that won't change when everything else does. A promise that where everything in our experience, good and bad alike, withers and fades, comes and goes, God's love is steadfast. It is always new. He's faithful. And this our poet calls to mind. And therefore, he has hope. This is hope remembering, friends. You can find this hope too while you wait. He doesn't stop there though. That's the first thing, the most foundational thing that he remembers. It's not the only thing he remembers. I want to show you a few other examples. All of these things are are pulled from the character of God. When he is at his most hopeless, his response is systematic theology. is to go through what he knows and has been taught by his teachers about who God is from their history and from their law. And he rattles off from this point truths about God that he needs to remember. I want to read several verses here building to a, a, a memory that the Lord is compassionate, which is one of the fundamental things that the Lord said to Moses when Moses asked him, who are you? Who should I tell the people I'm going to lead that you are? Who should I tell them has sent me? God puts his compassion at the heart of his answer, at the heart of his own identity. And this, this author is about to bring that to mind. I want to read all the way from where I've left off to where he turns to compassion. I'm going to begin here in In verse 25, the Lord, he says, is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Why? Why should he take it and wait and hope? Verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Why should we believe that? Chapter 2 is full of vivid descriptions of his anger. And Israel deserved everything they got. Why should we assume that he's not done with them? Relationships end all the time. Why should this one be different? 
verse 32. But though he caused grief, yes, he did bring this, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Do you see what he's saying? It is in God's nature to be compassionate. That's who he is. Now, sometimes, based on things that happen in history, God's love leads him to anger in wrath against those who, who harm one another in disobedience to him. But his wrath is derivative. His compassion is native to who he is. I love this image of of him having compassion because he just can't help it. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, I imagine it as some of those gushing creeks that we passed by on our drive to the mountains last week. Sometimes you're just driving along the the, the interstate as you get closer to the the foothills of the Smokies and there's just like this water just pouring out of the side of the bluff that's been cut out for the road. It just can't be contained. Think of this abundance that nothing can stop. It just keeps on coming. Another image for whatever reason that popped into my head thinking about this unstoppable abundance of God's compassion was that amazing I Love Lucy episode where uh, Lucy gets this job in the chocolate factory. Do you guys know about this one? Oh man, if you haven't seen it, just go to YouTube and Google Lucy, uh, whatever her last name is, Chocolate Factory. You'll probably find it. Uh, what was her name? Okay, Ricardo. Yeah, Lucy Ricardo, Chocolate Factory. Google it. You will not be sorry. So Lucy gets this job in Chocolate Factory, and she's standing at this belt, and the belt is sending out the little chocolates, and her job is to wrap them, right? So then put them into the box. And at first, she thinks she's just nailing it, you know? She's wrapping them. You're not supposed to let any go past you. If any get past you, you get fired. You know, certain, you got like a quota. And then they start really coming and she's just like throwing the wrapper on and she still can't get past, keep up with them. So she's reaching as far as she can to grab the ones that have gone past and she's shoving them into her mouth and she's got a mouthful of chocolate. She's throwing them down her shirt. She's, she's, she's throwing them up under, the, up under the, uh, the, the, the belt. She can't keep up. It's just too much. There's no stopping this chocolate. I'm imagining that's God's love. That's what he's remembering. God's compassion is just never ceasing. It's abundant. It just overflows. It just keeps on coming and there's nothing that can stop it. Not even our sin can stop his love for us. That's what he's saying. You guys messed up royally. Chapter two is all about that. Speaking of Israel. But, 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 but God can't cast off forever. What did he tell us when he explained who he was? When Moses asked, what was his answer? The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is full of loving kindness. And when his hope is suffocating, he remembers who he's dealing with. He knows that the Lord will not cast off forever. It's just not in his nature. He doesn't afflict from his heart. He also remembers that the Lord is just. He remembers his steadfast love. He remembers that the Lord is compassionate. He next reminds himself that the Lord is just. Verse 34 to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. What's he saying there? I mean, chapter two, God's justice is very bad news for Israel because they are on the receiving end of it. They deserved to be punished. But the way it went down was not okay. What the Babylonian army did when they entered the holy city inexcusable 
the way they crushed those whom they had conquered, not sanctioned. And now on the receiving end of God's justice, acknowledging it, not fighting back, not pushing back, Israel looks around at what Babylon looks like and they say, how can you punish us and not punish them? How do they get away with this? And his hope is suffocating under this mistreatment. And he reminds himself at that place, the the, the Lord is just. That's who he is. He doesn't approve. He saw it. He knows it. He won't forget about it. He's just. And you need to remember this, friend, this morning. If your hope is suffocating under mistreatment or misjudgment or misunderstanding and broken relationships, if that's where you are and it's crushing your hope in life, you need to remember that the Lord sees you. He knows what's true. He understands. He's just. And the last thing that he remembers in this tour through what he knows about God is that the Lord is sovereign. Verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain about the punishment of his sins? It sounds a lot like a couple passages in Isaiah. Who is like the Lord? No one. He knows all. He rules over all. Everything that happens comes from him. So, so loss often feels senseless to us. And one of our temptations in it is to try to bring order to it. Even, in, even if it's just order in our own mind, to try to figure out what exactly happened here and bring it to heal through organizing that information and presenting it in a compelling way, at least to ourselves, if not to others. And, and this man surely has been driven to that some, to spinning in his own mind and heart over what went down and why. But it's almost like here, when his hope is suffocating, he's sick of living in his own head, that he just confesses, all right, God is sovereign. Good and bad come from him. He knows all and rules all. That is above my pay grade. His ways are not like ours. I'm out of that game. I'm trusting and remembering that he's in control because I can't be. And maybe that's something you need to call to mind this morning. It's threatening sometimes to think of God as in control and think of ourselves as not in control. But once you've been broken of your sense, your desire for control, then the, the, the good news that, that he's in control washes over you. It feels right. It feels right in part, friends, because of where he started this whole list of truths about God in the first place. Remember what I told you at the beginning when we started this section. He's fighting for hope by rehearsing what he knows about the character of God and at the root of it, driving everything else, underlying, coloring, filtering, all the other truth about him is that God is steadfast in his love. It's his steadfast love that drives his sovereign power. It's his steadfast love that's behind his perfect administration of justice. It's his steadfast love that sits behind that overflowing compassion as its source in an ever-flowing stream. It is his steadfast love. And what you need to know as you fight for hope, suffocating as you may be under the weight of what you've lost, what you need to know is this. When loss has made a wasteland of what you love, you need to remember who loves you. 
there's, there's a book that I read a month or two ago, getting ready for the series, by a man named Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a philosopher at Yale. mentioned it at one point already in this series. A, a book called A Lament for a Son. He wrote it to try to express what he was feeling after his 20-something-year-old son was killed in a mountain-climbing accident. There's just one place in the book where he talks about the fact that laments are always love songs, right? What gives lament its power is your love, your attachment to what you've lost. So any lament that we offer to God is a, is a love song to what we lost. But he asks, after observing this, he asks, will love songs always be laments? If all we have to go on is our experience in this life, we'd have to say, yeah. Because we know that everything we love, we ultimately lose. That's just what time does. Everything changes. If, if this life is, is all we have, then love songs will always be laments. But the hope of, of, of every Christian is that no, <laughs> there will be a day when our love songs are just love songs where we are joined to the steadfast, never-ceasing love of God as our whole ecosystem. When, when we only and always know the newness of mercy without change. And the memory that this poet is modeling for us is not just backward-looking, friends. This memory that he's modeling serves hope. It looks around but then looks ahead and puts everything on God being who he says he is. A God of perfect promises offered to imperfect people. A God who can change this story and make all things new. Our memory, hope remembering, serves our future-oriented longing for all that God has said to us that he will do. Now, this feels like a climactic moment in the poem. I want to end the sermon this morning by simply reading the next verses that follow the section we've spent all of our time on. Because what I want you to know is that, that this isn't a happy ending yet. Our minds and hearts want a happy ending. We prefer resolution, especially when we've seen the raw, unfiltered honesty of the first 18 verses of this poem. That's uncomfortable to sit with. And this feels like the happy ending we've been longing for. Wouldn't it be great if Lamentations as a book just ends right here at the end of this stanza? But it doesn't. And what you need to know, the reason I think that the poem doesn't end here, much less the book, is that the kind of hope that's modeled here doesn't require resolution to thrive. It just isn't necessary. Resolution isn't necessary for true and God-honoring and biblical hope. So this poem dives right back into the darkness and stays there for 20-plus verses. Let me read them to you and then close. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You've wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You've made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears. 
because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I'm lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You've redeemed my life. You've seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You've seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I'm the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. How does that sound for resolution? This guy's in the middle of it. But in the darkness this time, compared to what we saw in the first 18 verses, on the backside of his remembering, while his circumstances haven't changed yet and he still sits in despair, now he's reoriented. Now he's crying out to God. Now he is holding out the only hope he's got that the same God that judged him justly will also be for him freely, mercifully, and graciously. He's pleading. This is what hope looks like when your circumstances haven't changed yet. Pleading with God to do something. Yes, he pleads for forgiveness. He calls on his people to come back to God, acknowledge they were wrong. Maybe you need to do that this morning. Acknowledge that your suffering partly was brought on by your sin. There's freedom in admitting that and not trying to protect yourself. Jesus is God's own son, suffered, died, risen for you to be set free from what you've done. Confess that to him. But in the meantime, beyond confession, he just asks God to change. And what you need to know, he asks God to change his situation, his reality. What you need to know is that, is that trusting the steadfast love of God that came to us in the middle of this poem doesn't mean that you just sit back and take whatever you've got going on. It doesn't mean stoicism. It means pleading desperately as your only hope to the God who will hear you or you'll be lost. It means following this man's example. It means what he lays out for us in verses 48 to 50. Remember this, friends, from this poem. Having reminded himself what's true about God, what it looks like for hope, having remembered to keep on lamenting, is to cry tears. You won't stop crying until God answers your prayers. My eyes flow with rivers of tears, he said. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. This is hopeful. This is what hope pleading looks like. I'll cry to him until he sees me. I'll cry to him claiming the hope of Psalm 56 that every single one of my tears is in his bottle, recorded in his book, seen by him. I'll cry until he sees me because he's told me that one day he's coming to wipe every single one of those tears from my eye. Revelation 21. 
I'll cry until he comes. While I wait for that day, I'll cry trusting his steadfast love as my only hope and portion. I'll cry until he sees and hears. Friends, that is hopeful. That is honoring to him. And that is available to you this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to take this gift that you've given to us and use it. Help us to be honest, but to also fight for memory and bring to you whatever it is we feel. And we pray that you would hold us in that hope until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.